she looks like she's holding her hand up to light another one. I but love like, it. I love the idea that Helen is a chain smoker because why would she not be? He's like, yeah, I did yeah. that. Yeah. Welcome to this episode where we talk about how Helen of a Troy smokes a joint and we talk about pronunciation of He's bag like, and bag. bag. Helen of Troy. Helen of Troy opens up her, her bag of weed to smoke. Like I don't hear the difference. <laughs> She's ro- that's by not hearing the difference. That's the proof that you have an accent. You can see a temple-like building. You can see that it's in places painted in pure white, but then in other places you can see where the bloodshed or the conflict has kind of changed the tone in front of this gate we have different quick brush strokes and different colors to convey to the viewer this conflict it's more than what you think and of course she seems to be smoking as if she doesn't have a care in the world her clothes and her robe matches the quick brush strokes that we see in front of the gate. So what does that say about her? Welcome to the pointless century where we discuss history, culture, and politics in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Gustave Moreau versus Cy Twombly. We'll be talking about the grand trajectory from symbolism to postmodernism as we stare into the void that launched a thousand ships. Join Professor Frank Fuchile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and me, sound editor Madeline McCabe, for a discussion of the painting Helen at the Skein Gate and the cycle 50 Days at Ilium. Welcome to the season finale of The Pointless Century. Today we'll be talking about the painting that is the icon for the the show. And I guess that Helen of Troy is sort of our patron saint, if you will. <laughs> she really uh, is. If Fritz Haber is our, our patron demon. We have those two. And we also have a wonderful, more or less 100-year trajectory here between Gustave Moreau and Cy Twombly. And a consideration of this longer trajectory of war, of Western civilization, and of the Iliad specifically. So a couple quotes after I've asked people like, what do you know about the Trojan War and Helen of Troy? Some people actually did know some stuff. My friend Shay said, Aphrodite didn't like her. I don't know shit. I know some people think she's a bitch. (laughs) Another person said, and this is about Helen's actual husband. I know it was two dudes that were having a dick measuring contest to get Helen. Oh yeah, and she killed herself. That was wrong, but 
One person said, I have no clue what you're talking about. She doesn't kill herself? No. I know surprisingly little of this mythology. I mean, um, she's literally been kidnapped and trafficked, and then some motherfuckers start a war over her. Yeah. And then, like, the whole city is destroyed. Yeah. How is she not just, like, smoking the whole time? Yeah. You have to and cope somehow. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's the least you could do. Men are whack. One other dude said, I guess she was a lady people wanted to marry, so a bunch of other dudes got themselves killed because people couldn't keep it in their pants. Your friends are just knocking it out of the park. I do want to start, though, with a long-winded old man story. Um, (laughs) Another one? This is going to be the one that starts with Gustave Moreau painting in Paris in the 1880s and ends with... A hot chick named Helen. No, it ends with two chicks named Anna and Rachel... Uh, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, in the cursed year of our Lord 2020, 140 years later. (laughs) Oh, God. And I wanted to to tell this story because it's something that I've been thinking about as a literary scholar and as a historian. It's very easy to think about art and literature and culture as something that happened in the past and that we might then aspire to or that we might be imitating or that we might be reacting to or that we might be interpreting. But as I've gotten older, I've become more and more aware that art and culture is also this sort of mesh that binds us together. It's this vast network that connects us to all the other people, all the other events throughout history. And thinking about things this way, I think allows us to, I guess, just appreciate our position in the world and say that like, well, those people might be better artists or better writers than I am, or maybe not, but at any rate, we're all connected to each other, that this is a tradition, this is a lineage, and we are all a part of it. So this story starts, as I said, with Gustave Moreau painting in Paris in the 1880s, including a number of the paintings that we'll be looking at today, drawing from influences of classicism, of exoticism, drawing from a whole Western tradition of stories about the past, but working as an artist, trying to produce something a little bit new, a little bit different out of the ruins of an old and decadent culture, right? Thinking about something like the Trojan War as the end of one thing and then eventually the beginning of something new, And this obviously feeds into our notion of what modernism ends up being. So Moreau, for instance, is not an impressionist, nor is he a post-impressionist, but in that same way that he's not painting in a purely representational fashion, but also in a symbolic fashion, and in some cases in a sort of gestural or even slightly more abstracted fashion, he is a part of that movement at the end of the 19th century to get painting to do something a little bit more than just represent the world, right? For his purposes, he's representing what he thinks of as enduring concepts, enduring figures, enduring symbols and mythologies, reviving them, 
developing them, evoking them in the minds of his viewers. And he ends up then leading to a whole second generation of symbolists in the European tradition, some of whom end up doing some of what we would call early modernist work in art and in visual art and in dramatic arts. And so we see some of the origins, not just of French modernism, but of more generally European modernism in mixing that second generation of symbolist art with the things that post-impressionists are doing, maybe abstracting it a little bit more, maybe making it a little bit weirder and developing more this concept of, well, what is civilization? What does it mean to move into a new century? And from those sorts of early modernist movements, we get literary modernism, of course. And one of those crucial figures in literary modernism and in specifically surrealism, that is the form of literary modernism, Dada and surrealism, which emerge from the First World War and then the interwar period. The crucial figure there is André Breton, who moves from Dada into early surrealism, particularly with a lot of that emphasis and a lot of that focus on non-Western art, including African art, and a sort of interest in combining certain aspects of anthropology with artistic abstraction, with an attempt to delve into the subconscious and stuff like that. But Breton had great respect for Gustave Moreau. He considered Moreau a sort of proto-surrealist, somebody who was, as I said, tapping into those core mythologies within the human psyche that he could see in, yes, of course, the Western tradition, but presumably throughout all of human history. And so André Breton was notorious for hanging out at Gustave Moreau's old studio and apartment, which had by then been established as a sort of small museum dedicated to Moreau's work. And of course, Breton and the Dadaists and the Surrealists then were known very much for sort of, as I said, abstraction, collage work, stuff like that. And in combination with some of the expressionism that's coming from the European visual modernism, you would eventually in post-war America have this sort of abstract expressionist movement that then gets overturned by artists like Jasper Jones and Robert Rauschenberg, who are sort of letting that abstract expressionism evolve into a territory that combined sculpture with collage, with painting. And while it owed certainly plenty to that abstract expressionism, while it was certainly a form of modernism, it was sort of beginning to edge toward something that would be more recognizable as postmodern art. And also at this same time in the 50s and into the 60s, you'd have beat writers like William S. Burroughs reviving some of those collage techniques in literature, developing them into cut-ups. And as I've mentioned in some of our past conversations, whole novels, trying to find ways of, of working Dada or surrealism into the literary arts or back into the literary arts, if you will. Well, Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg were lovers early on in their explorations of what Rauschenberg called combines and with the sort of artwork that Johns is probably known best for, for people who aren't like art scholars, which is stuff like the targets and flags 
that are painted on collage newspaper on canvases. You've probably seen these before, right? Rauschenberg is less well known in the in the normie world, but everybody's seen a Jasper Johns yeah, because he's so gosh darn accessible. I mean, he's not, but he he seems to be, you know. So you've probably seen something like this, and you've almost certainly seen that, if nothing else, maybe on the cover of a textbook about America. <laughs> I think it actually was on my textbook. Yeah, it yeah, probably yeah. was on mine too, honestly. Yeah. This is like the breakthrough work that blows everybody's fucking mind because everybody else is like doing Jackson Pollock type shit and Jasper oh. Johns is like, I'll paint a flag. <laughs> and sometimes that's all it takes. To me, it looks like something, you know, like people doing palette art. It looks mm-hmm. like something you'd see on that. If you zoom way in on this, this is like little scraps of newspaper that are glued to the canvas and then painted on top of with encaustic, which is a paint that's based in beeswax. It's a really weird and time-consuming process. I thought this was just like a painting. I mean, it, that's kind of the weird thing about it is it's actually not a painting at all. It's kind of a drawing and kind of a sculpture and kind of a collage. It refuses to, it like, like with Twombly's work, Twombly is like pushing you to a place like, is this a painting? Is this graffiti? Is this just bullshit? You know, that's, and that's where you're sort of edging from the modernist into the postmodern. So this was famous too. And he made such a big splash that I think MoMA, the the Museum of Modern Art was like, and we'll buy this one and we'll buy that one and we'll buy the other one. Like his first exhibition, because he was just like, sometimes, like I said, all it takes is just like shit that nobody's seen before. Shit that people are like, wait, you can do that? (laughs) I think that's Twombly's 50 Days at Ilium. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's sort of the story of the whole modernist and postmodern trajectory. It's sometimes done better than others. This is, this is a good one. He looks, I think he looks particularly badass there. I mean, as badass as a sort of. Dwarf. He's like, yeah, I did yeah. that. He's a, he's an odd duck, a, a very, very dweeby, shy, southern gay dude. <laughs> anyway, Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg are doing this new different stuff. Uh, Rauschenberg's were even weirder that what he called combines would be like a sort of collage but if you imagine the collage also involves objects so you'd be sticking things or gluing things on the canvas or making things in like boxes and then parts of it would be paintings and parts of it would be like found objects and part is this a sculpture but it's like things I just found so there's a lot of nods (laughs) I'm not going to get into the duct tape wall banana right now I mean that's that's a later development and and what arguably johns is already edging towards that because part of what he's doing could be considered like a like process art which then becomes like performance art later on the duct tape wall banana is like more like that process art type i'm looking it up that would be like the kind of thing that people were edging towards then again in the 60s and 70s where it became like well what if it's a happening what if you just like go to a place and like people are doing weird shit and that's the art you know but the dude that ate the banana, he just did it because he wasn't hired by anybody. Was he? No, he was part of he was part of the piece as well. Oh. Yes. I thought 100. he was just like a dude that was like, fuck this shit. Now here's the extra part that's gonna blow your mind. Even if he wasn't, then he still would have been. True. That's what artists in the sixties and seventies were trying to get at too. And arguably that goes back as far as the Dadaists and the Futurists, right? Like the Futurists like wanted to cause riots, right? The futurist talked about war as though it was some kind of art, you know? 
and, and similarly, the Dadaists, they were like really into it when people were like, we're going to show up and throw vegetables at you because they're like, yes, we're doing something. It's successful, <laughs> you know, or like even something this as seemingly pedestrian today as you go to a, you go to a punk show and people are moshing like that's part of the scene and being part of the scene. It's also part of the art. It's part of the experience of the performance. Right. I, I should I should send you my essay on Jasper Johns I've, that I've been desperately working on, but this is where this is where we get to eventually. The, yeah. the point is you're you're sidetracking me. We're we're still in we're still in the fifties and sixties where Johns and Rauschenberg are like blowing everybody's minds, and then they sort of go different ways doing different things. But Cy Twombly then ends up being Rauschenberg's lover. So Twombly and Rauschenberg end up in Europe together and ultimately Twombly spends most of his life in and around Rome. He loves Italy and the first time he goes to Italy is on a grant from the Virginia Museum of Fine Art, the VMFA. They do annually a sort of grant program where they'll give artists and art scholars a certain amount of money. It's not a huge amount of money but it's enough to like do something with and they don't ask you to tell them what you're going to do with it, nor do they care. They just say, the only thing is just write us, you know, like a page or whatever telling us what you did. <laughs> That's sweet. Like, I mean, you have to sub submit your work to show that you're good enough for oh, it and then like but... pick the best, they pick the best handful or whatever of people that they have money for. And that's just like, go off, do your thing, you know? And Twombly uses that money to go to Rome for the first time. And he ends up ultimately spending most of his life in, in Italy uh, because that's cooler than living in Lexington, Virginia, where he was from. If I'm remembering Lexington, Virginia correctly, I think that Lexington is like the part of Virginia that's like nearly Tennessee. I don't know. It's but it's like Elliot wanting to be British. Well, or it's like Jasper Johns trying to like wrap his head around what it would even mean to be an artist when he was growing up in South Carolina. And I think that maybe for his like kid brain that was like almost perfectly overlapping with what it meant to be queer, you know? That like he knew that in his heart he was something so different than the people and the culture around him. So he had to get out. He moved to New York City. And that's where, of course, he did all of his work until then he got older and, and moved back. I think he lives in, in South Carolina again now as an old man. And of course, inevitably still doing work because he's one of those guys who I think is just obsessed with constantly working. But yeah, you know, this is the experience of being a musician. This is the experience of being an artist. Part of that is wanting to get out of, you know, a town where there's nothing better to do than throw dried cow shit excuse me <laughs> <laughs> we're in the 70s now and as i said we could continue our story about american art shifting towards more performance art and other kinds of weird blurrings of lines in terms of postmodernism. we could continue our american story in terms of Burroughs and other weirdo experimental metafiction writers, again, blurring lines of genre, blurring lines of what narrative is, what a novel is, et cetera, et cetera. But instead, what we'll be talking about today is Cy Twombly doing things that look like graffiti and that claim to be paintings, but it's Looks not like really clear. Drawings. Exactly. Look like something that a kid could do. And that's got to be part of the point of it. But also is very, of course, literary, very focused on words, not unlike Jasper Johns. Also very focused on mythologies, right? Of sort of name-checking mythologies and forcing you to think about mythologies. 
it turns out a lot of Jasper Johns's work and a lot of Cy Twombly's work end up in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is where one Frank Fucile ends up between 2005 and 2012. After several years of being completely obsessed with William S. Burroughs and thinking lots about collage and lots about what the limits of writing and what the boundaries of art are. And literally the Philadelphia Museum of Art has a whole room dedicated to some of John's work, especially his works that are sculptures, sculptures that claim to be found objects. So sort of like reverse riffs on the kinds of things that Marcel Duchamp was doing back in the days of Dada and Surrealism. And also, of course, the Philadelphia Museum of Art has the whole cycle of 10 paintings of the 50 Days at Ilium by Cy Twombly, which puzzled me plenty. And for a year or two, I even had a membership to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, uh, and I would go all the time when I was having trouble writing. Or I... uh, there would be a sort of cocktail hour that they'd do every Friday. So sometimes you'd go in and you'd get your ticket and you'd get your drink and then you'd wander around the galleries on a, on a Friday night before you then, you know, went out to the bars or whatever else you were doing. And sometimes, you know, also Sundays would be free. I don't know if they still do this, but when they had enough money, Sundays would be free to everybody. So some years I was a member and could go anytime I wanted. Sometimes I would just go when I could, but I spent a lot of time at that museum thinking about that art. Ultimately, then, when I went to graduate school for the second time, I moved to Virginia. So I was at William & Mary, and I'd been at the VMFA a few times, and I saw the call for this fellowship and ended up submitting some of the visual studies work I'd done to it, including really bonkers-ass essay on Jasper Johns, which I've been revising since then and never managed to get published, but uh, that if I had enough time to do a, another further revision, it, it may eventually be published as uh, an academic essay, of course, on Johns. And specifically thinking about the way that Johns is messing with materiality and what a sort of eco-critical reading of Johns might be. But I won that fellowship, that same fellowship that Cy Twombly won so many years ago. What? Yeah. Well, I didn't win it as an artist. And like I said, they have as many winners as they have money for. But basically, they they give like one award, at least if I'm remembering correctly for the year that I won it. They gave one award to every artist and every medium that they had a category for. So they had a sculptor and they had a painter and they had a drawer. I don't know. I, I can't remember. They probably had a whole bunch of different ones for the actual artists. And then they had one for the art historian and I won the art historian one. Yeah. Never mind that I'm not really an art historian. I mean, I am in that I, you know, I wear a lot of hats. I'm an art historian in the same way. I'm an art historian in the same way that I'm a film historian, right? I, I do American studies, so that means I do a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And that's like the more comfortable label for me is visual studies, because that means I'm thinking more broadly. But arguably, that gives me a perspective on John's that is actually wider and a little bit weirder potentially, and on Twombly and on anything else, right? Also, I, of course, had traveled to France a few times. And the last time that I'd been in France in 2013, I had gone to all of the Par- all of the Paris museums, the major ones, except for the Gustave Moreau Museum, which was under renovation at the time. But I had gone to the Centre Pompidou, which I'm a big fan of, 
I mean, I'm a fan of all the Paris museums, obviously, uh, but the Centre Pompidou has like a recreation of Andre Breton's apartment with like all of his African masks and other sort of artifacts out of context, along with his like art studies and books and stuff like that. So you can see the way that he lived and, you know, how he thought about the world. Mm-hmm. But when Cy Twombly died, of course, the Centre Pompidou did his first major retrospective. Oh, that would have been 2016. He died in 2011. And in 2016, the Centre Pompidou did the first major retrospective on his work. So there he was, of course, in his rightful place. Then in 2018, I got to go back to France. And the one thing that I wanted to do in my one day in Paris, the first day, was see the Gustave Moreau Museum. And so I was able to then go into the space where he lived and worked and see the crazy paintings that he did there. And I sort of came to this conclusion, and I've told you guys about this, that this is like a portrait of a civilization on the verge of destroying itself, like a civilization obsessed with and destined and desperate to destroy itself, right? Blood and guts and gore and destruction and sacrifice and waste, like all these things that I've been thinking of for the past six years of my PhD work were all already there before the 20th century even started in Moreau's work. And so it's no surprise then that after the First World War, Andre Breton's creepily skulking around this house like, yes, this guy had seen the future. Yes, this guy sees into the soul of man, right? And in particular, I was fascinated with that painting of Helen at the Scaean Gate, Helen at the Walls of Troy, uh, which we then use for our icon. And which then leads us here to you, where then I am telling you this long-winded old man story about the past 140 years as we gaze into the void of civilization's long, slow suicide. So there, there is like, in, in a very real sense, uh, a lineage that, that goes all the way from Gustave Moreau to you guys and it might sound a little hokey but i want you to be inspired by that and to take that as like you're part of something bigger than yourselves and as dire as it seems like this moment is now it is only one part of a very very long catastrophe and it will continue uh, undoubtedly Hello, at the scan gate. Here we go. You can see a temple-like building in places painted in pure white, but then in other places you can see where the bloodshed or the conflict has kind of changed the tone and the placing of the colors. In front of this gate, we have a lots of different, I would say, quick brush strokes in different colors to convey to the viewer this conflict. It's not all one color and that gives a sort of essence of, well, there's a lot involved in this. It's more than what you think. And then obviously to the left of this painting, we have Helen. And of course, she seems to be smoking as if she doesn't have a care in the world. Her tone of white matches the background, but also matches the gate. 
her clothes and her robe matches the quick brush strokes that we see in front of the gate. So what does that say about her? I think that in your focus on the brush strokes, we sort of missed like what is being figured here, right? Because yeah, we have lots of quick brush strokes, but brush strokes of what? If I zoom in like this, it just looks like brush strokes, right? But if we back up, it's like gore, it's blood and guts, right? It looks like the the blood on the walls, it's so smeared that it honestly looks like ketchup smeared on a table, not sure. to discredit sure. it, but it definitely looks like it was smeared and it's been up for a while. This is a figure that I've almost never noticed before. I didn't notice that. I don't think I even noticed it when I saw it in person. I think it's a peasant. Like he's holding his arm like this, like elbow up, carrying a sack on his back, but he's got a white sack or like a hood that's down from his head. And he seems to be more of a peasant class and he's wearing brown pants and stuff. And he's got a messy head of hair. See, that, that's not what I see at all. I see, I see this all as gore and blood and guts, like as, as the battle has come to the gate here. And I see here a warrior with a knife or something, some weapon in his hand stabbing. I see two figures. I see one with an obvious face, the one that I think you're describing as a peasant, and then a second body here next to him, looking as though... Yeah, he's being stabbed. I see a scene of violence, but it's very ambiguously rendered. It's very gestural, as you said, Anna, with a lot of these quick brush strokes, and it's not quite figurative enough to exactly see what's going on. But if I take this to be a scene of blood and guts and gore, I can maybe see a body here at the edge of the gate. I can maybe see two warriors fighting here and this man about to fall into this just pile of gore below him. Stefan Mayarme once said that symbolism in a nutshell is to not depict the thing, but the effect it produces. So what I'm taking this as is the blood and guts and gore that are all not high res. It's war. We don't really want to look at it. We want to look at the more pretty thing, which is Helen. She's this pure white, beautiful thing, but She's sort of clothed a little bit by the effects of war. She's got that taint on her. And with the smoke coming from the building, the way that it's lining, it's supposed to draw the viewer in to look at Helen instead of the war all around her. We want to look at the pretty things instead of the gross, disgusting war that nobody appreciates. Yeah, maybe. So Mallarmé would have been one of the symbolist poets who is sort of either a precursor to modernism or an early modernist, depending on how people like to draw the line. I think I'd be comfortable describing him as the second generation of French and European symbolists who are then working their way toward literary modernism. And so in terms of depicting the thing or the effect of the thing, I do see in that a lot of influence from the visual arts like this. That's in a certain sense what the original Impressionists were doing, right? So from the Impressionists to the post-Impressionists, then into true modernism, there's that whole tendency. And that tendency uh, towards abstraction is maintained all the way through to that 1950s New York scene that Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg are rebelling against when, you know, Johns is being like, well, what if it was just a thing? What if it was just a flag? 
you know, a thing and then again, not a thing. So the thingness sort of comes back into style with postmodernism. But also Mallarmé's notion of symbolism is, to my mind, a very literary notion of symbolism where, and I think you see this maybe in dramatists like Strindberg, August Strindberg, who's using sort of non-realist settings and objects and events as a way of symbolizing things. But to say symbolizing things, it can't merely be like a one-for-one, this symbolizes this thing, or else you're not really adding anything to it. That's just allegory, not symbolism. Symbolism in that turn-of-the-century literary sense is it always has to be symbolizing something in a way that's actually even more than the thing, right? And then, of course, we get that in in a work of art like this, where, of course, we we know that it can't be merely about Troy. We know that it can't be merely about Helen. So, as you say, Rachel, it could be about, well, what we choose to look at, what we think is beautiful, what we think is ugly, right? And none of us had noticed this figure until we looked at it quite a bit, right? So much of this I thought of as, like, the aftermath of war, when actually, like, I now can't not see this as hand-to-hand combat. You may very well be right, Rachel. It could just as easily be, say, one of the citizens, say a peasant, hauling a pack on his back. It could be somebody cleaning up in the aftermath of battle, right, while Helen calmly sits and watches, right? It could be anything. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I don't think that Moreau actually was intending for her to be smoking, but I do love the idea that she's smoking. (laughs) It makes her badass. She's like, yeah, I don't care. I'm kind of standing firm with the we're supposed to look at Helen because the pile of the blood and guts and gore, it gets lighter and it leads to Helen. And then we've also got the smoke. So it's like naturally coming in to Helen. Well, I think we proved that though, because we've all looked at this a lot and we never noticed these figures in the background until right now. So yeah, I do think that you're right that Helen in the foreground is sort of the focal point. Helen, who is never referenced in Cy Twombly's 50 Days at Ilium. Anna, do you have other thoughts on this painting? I can't believe I didn't notice, now that you mentioned that. I'm telling you, I saw it in person and I never noticed those figures. Now that we mentioned that, I can't not see them now. It's not a huge painting. But like people aren't actively talking about it in person. They're all like, hmm. I mean, personally, when I go to museums, I don't want to feel like a douche taking too long looking at it up close for too long well it's a little bit different it's not like the it's not like the louvre so it's it's the kind of place honestly the the moreau museum is very much the kind of place that artists hang out at like i would say i mean obviously tourists go there too but it's maybe 10th on the list of major paris museums i mean for me i'd put it you know in my top four or five you know Obviously, you got to have Centre Pompidou, Musée d'Orsay, and the Louvre. Those, if you have, you know, time to see three museums in Paris, you got to hit the big three, right? But if you have time to go to the small ones, this would be like at the top of my list. Would you say the small ones are in some ways actually better than the more well-known ones? Well, they're different. The ones that are like top-tier ones that are smaller do tend to be like the Moreau Museum. These like sort of here was a genius who lived and worked in this space and we've preserved his home with all the stuff that didn't end up in the big museums. Sure. 
And so they do tend to be places where people who are historians or artists hang out at to, you know, obsess over these little tiny details. Like I saw a lot of obvious art students with sketch pads and and such in the Moreau Museum doing studies and taking notes and stuff like that. And you see that in any museum, but, you know, and imagine even, you know, even back to Breton, right? In those interwar years, just sort of like haunting, as they said, or if you will, creep in at the Moreau Museum. (laughs) As for my further thoughts in this painting I'm trying to notice things that I wouldn't the part that I like best about this painting is the destruction and I I do love the way that he depicts the gore but I will draw your attention to what I think is this figure above the gate oh my goodness I think I know what it is what do you think it is it looks like not literally, obviously, but I think that would take the place of a crow. We know crows are scavengers, so watching over all of the death and things like that. Yeah, I like that. To me, it looks like a devil goat. I like that too. So you gave me two really great sort of symbolic readings, and I will do you one stupider. I'll give you <laughs> one like dead ass literal. Because I see two little perked up ears, and I see a long white nose, and I see a long black neck, and then I see a back. I see a horse. I deadass see the Trojan horse. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. I thought, oh, it might be a horse head, but it looks like it's dripping down, so that doesn't make sense. Up close, it looks more like a goat, but from far away, it looks like, yeah, it looks like horse ears. I mean, it can be any of these or all of these at once. This is what's wonderful about I mean, interpretation. A devil goat. Devil Come goat's on. cool. <laughs> Carrion animal is cool, but it can also very literally be the Trojan horse, and this could very much make sense as the scene after the Greeks or Achaeans bust out of that horse and slaughter all of the residents of Troy or Ilium. I just had another thought. So you notice how like as you go up the temple or Mm -hmm. the gate, it gets wider and less tainted. Maybe that's signifying like men are brutal and always prone to war, just like Twombly's work, which some people have theorized. And it gets more pure white later, just Mm -hmm. like how Helen does. Her hat is blood and gore that we don't want to look at. So she is the daughter of Zeus, but as she gets better, she's more godlike. But then she's topped off and she's tainted by the blood and gore that okay. she is surrounded by and caused. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a little bit too symbolist for, for my taste, but I wouldn't begrudge you any sort of reading. Well, it's also worth asking, do you think that he finished this painting? Because I actually quite a bit doubt it. I think that by our 20th century standards, this is like, cool, you did it, dude. You knocked it out of the park. You, you've done just enough and then left enough to the imagination, right? But by 19th century standards, this is still like kind of experimentally unfinished. Like Helen doesn't have a face. The figures aren't really fully fleshed out. And the fact that it's still living in the Gustave Moreau Museum is 
almost definitely because it wasn't ever sold, right? I think the facelessness is on purpose. Well, the thing about avant-garde work in the late 19th century is that uh, there's a lot of great work that the prevailing critics of the time would say, oh, that's not finished. Like that's what the impressionists got very often and definitely the post-impressionists. So there is a good question about whether whether Moreau intended to do more on this and just stopped because he considered it a study or whether this was exactly the way he wanted it to be. Again, I'm not strictly speaking an art historian, so I can't answer that question for you. We could look it up, but it's very likely also that we don't know. Is it ever finished or does it get to the place where it's, well, it's satisfactory and then your mind wanders off to other far corners? So kind of like, it reminds me of writing. Yeah. Maybe in some ways it's never finished. So there's this study of Helen at the gates. She doesn't have a face. Just like here. It doesn't even quite have a body. Yeah, and I think that's on purpose. So with symbolism, it's not to depict the thing, but the thing that the effect produces. And I sort of think with this as a depiction of Helen of Troy, it's strong, powerful, beautiful, but you don't know much about it and it sort of fades away. Well, it's a study, so we don't necessarily expect it to be finished. It's okay if it's not finished. But it does show how he is trying to figure out how you can gesture to a body and even get some sense of emotion and presence there. Like Anna said, like she looks like she's, she's rolling the next, you know, and you can get that out of just a few brush strokes and learning to do a lot with a little is I think part of the purpose of that study. Right. Now that is from 1885. And obviously that's what, in 1880s Parisian art critic considers a completed portrait. And to me, it looks like she's not a woman men fought and died over. I know it has the people at the bottom, but she's so much more significant than that. And uh, one of my rabbit holes was the sapphires or lapis lazuli that she's wearing. She's wearing a shit ton of that. Like, look at all that blue. She's got a belt that drapes down, and she's got armbands and bracelets, and then she's got a whole freaking crown. And it was just curious to me why there were so many sapphires or lapis lazuli. General meaning between the two that they share is royalty, power, and honor, and also peace. So sapphires, blue sapphires. They're usually depicted as blue for royals. So holiness and wisdom good fortune, faithfulness, that didn't happen. Sincerity, and people also connect it to Venus, which is the Roman version of Aphrodite, so goddess of love. And Venus, she is the one that promised Helen to Paris, and Paris took her to Troy. So it's just funny that she's wearing these things that people connect to Aphrodite slash Venus, when Aphrodite is kind of the one who started this chain of events. Oh, it also means harmony in lovers. There doesn't seem to be a lot of harmony between that love triangle. Who doesn't love that? Some drama. The obvious reading of the whole situation. (laughs) It's complicated. (laughs) The obvious reading of the whole situation, I, I would think, 
I think there'd be a time when we'd call this the feminist reading. And now increasingly, I just say it's the obvious reading, right? Is that this is some dudes telling a story about a war, right? And by some dudes, I mean any number of different improvisational poets who then end up being called Homer when it ends up getting written down later on, right? Any number of dudes telling a story about a big bad war where they have to blame it on, well, this chick was so hot, you'd understand, we had to fucking kill each other over her. <laughs> and the woman oh, that actually killed her was like, the wife of a soldier that was killed in the war. Like, it's this this need to, like, blame the woman, right? Quite obviously. Like, And you were talking about like things like power, like how much power does Helen really have in this situation? I would Anna. say not much, but then it's interesting how he makes the decision to depict her as such with the lapis lazuli. I don't know. Because lapis, the meaning that I got from it, was royalty, honor, power, gods, wisdom, and truth. But I don't see that. I don't see it either. Well, she is technically royalty if she's either with her real husband or with Paris, because her original husband was the king of Sparta, and Paris is the prince of Troy. Honor, not so much. Whether... You kind of left your husband, whether you eloped or you were abducted. Power, you have a shit ton of that. Look what happened because of your beauty. Gods, daughter of Zeus. Wisdom, eh. And truth, eh. <laughs> I don't know. It is very, very much this masculine trope where the men who are telling the stories are attributing power to her. It's not like she asked or connived in the direction of causing a war she's not like bitch i want to get this beauty so i can start a goddamn war she she did what no nobody asks for that that's stupid and anna in your reading which i love of course of the helen at the skate gate painting i did that right it's that kind of feminist reappropriation of that attribution of power. That, like, I never asked to be in this position, but well, if I am, then well, I can say this is this is what it all meant, you know? <laughs> right. You have to consider her only real power is the one that's generally attributed to women, which is her sexual power and her power to reproduce. So that, to me, is problematic. And it's not even a power that's given to her. It's a power that's taken from her by any number of dudes in a dick measuring competition. <laughs> and the flower here intrigues me. I was wondering about that. Because it's like coming out of her flower zone, it seems. But yeah. it doesn't oh, seem like no. she's been oh, deflowered. God. It doesn't seem like that. I don't want to think about it like, like she's that. still pure. But literally at the bottom here, she's got the people that are suffering. Yeah. And, like, her posture also suggests she's not that confident. Like, she's got the slumped shoulders. She's closing yeah. her shoulders. She's even sort of closing her hands over her crotch. She's sort of closing her legs. She's closing the robe in front of her pelvis. And as you say, the flower is coming out of the center of her body there. And I do think you're right to read that as a sign of fertility, uh, that's not accidental in a symbolist painting. I don't think it necessarily has anything to do with a question of deflowering. I mean, at least not, I'm not reading it that way, but I am reading it in terms of, yeah, I mean, flowers are reproductive organs quite literally. So I like a good literal symbolism. 
this is all like a body language of resistance, right? This is not the body language of someone who is being a seductress. Like we can see no. any number of Moreau paintings where he depicts a seductress. Yeah. This is the body posture of a demure, respectable woman. Almost ashamed. I, yeah, I would say ashamed or even frightened. Because it makes sense to feel ashamed closing your body in like that because people move their hands in when they're uncomfortable or whatever. She's standing above these people on this stairwell because they're on the right-hand side. And there are these people that are suffering at the bottom. They're all just piled up between the stand for the stairs. So it makes sense that she doesn't feel like that. She didn't want this. She, she is pure. She had nothing to do with this, but people blame her. Right. And as I said, I went to that Moreau Museum. I couldn't help but feel like this was the archive of a civilization just so very ready to fight a war for no reason at all and it makes sense i mean it's even like a running joke of trying to explain the first world war and it's not like the first world war was fought because of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination, right? To explain the First World War, you have to explain any number of interlocking alliances and motivations that can, as stupidly as possible, be summed up as the whole continent was ready and really jazzed to go to war, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so I think that similarly in these paintings, Moreau, to my mind, is seeing through the bullshit and saying, well, yeah, Helen symbolizes something that men have always thought of when they try to explain the reasons that they do things. But actually, there is this vast discontinuity in every one of these paintings between her figure and the images of suffering and slaughter and violence all around her as though to say, no, she actually has nothing to do with it. Actually, it's just a dumbass excuse. What I also notice is the bottom sections, he chooses more muted colors in comparison to Mm -hmm. Helen. Look at Helen. She's got the the maroon slash red, the green. She's got this nice scarf thing going on. She's got a nice moment there. Well, that's how you- All this blue. Yeah, that's how you draw people's eyes. Yeah. You can see sort of like we talked about with the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Hmm. We're moving into an era here where the viewer of the art is not only expected to have a repertoire of symbolic, elusive knowledge to bring to the work of art and interpret it, but also the work of art is intentionally ambiguous enough that it can be interpreted in numerous potentially even infinite ways and that's part of the point other works that i prefer the apparition oh that's a weird one that's that's the severed head isn't it yeah they're pointing to like john the baptist sucks and i also like diomedes devoured by horses there's a lot there too Hercules or Heracles gone bad. I think they're very weird and they're very gory. There's a lot of weird and gory stuff. Which is maybe partially why I like it. So Well, there was one painting that I was very fascinated by uh, when I was at the museum. 
it was his depiction of Odysseus returning from the Odyssey and slaughtering all the suitors. I wrote about it extensively in my journal because I was just fascinated by it. But again, one of these scenes of just like outrageous gore. He does a lot of mythology. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and that's sort of what anchors his symbolism, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's got like at least three pieces about the chimera. This is the one that I was sort of staring at for a while. The suitors. Oh yeah. Now the suitors is the suitors. Oh, wasn't it for Odysseus's uh, wife? Yeah, but it was like the aerial competition, and he disguised himself. Yes, yes. You are remembering the Odyssey better than most people do. <laughs> Probably better than even Gustave Moreau does, because this just sort of looks like Kill Bill style, like slaughterhouse. This is weird. The long and short of it is Odysseus is gone for, what is it, 10 years while he's like that. trying to make his way back from Troy to wherever the fuck he was from. And he sucks at this. Oh my God. <laughs> because they, they run into like a million horrible things that happen and most of them die. I think actually eventually all of them die except for he himself, right? Yeah. We have in this uh, painting of uh, the suitors or les prétendants, les, pr- les prétendants. Hi everyone, this is Madeline. I'm the new editor for The Pointless Century, and I'm sure Professor Fucili is going to love this, but I just wanted to give a little clarification for what he's trying to say, and the French version of the painting is les prétendants. We have uh, basically... Ulysses or Odysseus comes home to all these assholes who have been sex pestering his wife for the past 10 or so years and he kills the shit out of them. Because he's a boss ass bitch. That is how you do things as a man. God forbid forbid your fragile masculinity. (laughs) But like she knew that he was there so they set up a task specifically that only he could do. So like, it was like three targets and he had to like hit all three of them. They all knew what was going on. It's like this bit about threading the arrow through a series of yeah, axe heads like, as you had referenced. The, yeah. the mom and the son were like in on it. Like they're like, we're going to make these bitches cry. So then after he wins the competition, he just kills the shit out of everybody. And this is this is what we're seeing here. So the long and short of this is that this is like, we, I mean, there's a lot of scenes of carnage, right? And so we have St. George and the Dragon, even if you want to, if you want to get British, you know, in the St. George and the Dragon, we have actually some, some little bits and pieces here where I see like, oh, geez, that looks like Dolly could do that. The dismembered bodies look very much more surrealist in a way that's like recognizable in the sort of figurative surrealist tradition. So yeah, in Moreau, we get a lot of blood and guts and gore and a lot of, well, here's a horrible thing that happened. And if we know the history, we can sort of fill in the story, but maybe we don't fill in the story. Maybe we don't know the history. And then again, maybe that also is part of the point too, right? I mean, a lot of this is just like, you know, blood and guts and blood and guts and blood and guts. And here are some excuses for it, you know? That's kind of what it comes down to in my head, where we're talking about like blaming the women or we're talking about anything else, right? We're talking about a very violent and brutal world where people, specifically men, 
make up elaborate excuses for what they do. I'm reminded of the only sections of Pound that I ever really feel are worth reading. I mean, there's some Pound that's worth reading, but you know, this is again, parts four and five of Hugh Selwyn Marbule, and this is where he's specifically dealing with the First World War. And it does remind me a lot of what Moreau's doing in these, in these paintings where it's like, well, why are people fighting over all this shit? These fought in any case, and some believing, pro domo in any case, some quick to arm, some for adventure, some from fear of weakness, some from fear of censure, some for love of slaughter in imagination, learning later, some in fear, learning love of slaughter. Died some, pro patria, non dolce, non et decor. Walked eye deep in hell, believing in old men's lies, then unbelieving came home, home to a lie. Home to many deceits, home to old lies and new infamy, a usury age old and age thick, and liars in public places. Daring is never before, wastage is never before, young blood and high blood, fair cheeks and fine bodies. Fortitude is never before, frankness is never before, disillusion as never told in the old days. Hysterias, trench confessions, laughter out of dead bellies. There died a myriad, and of the best among them, for an old bitch gone in the teeth, for a botched civilization. Charm, smiling at the good mouth, quick eyes gone under earth's lid, for two gross of broken statues, for a few thousand battered books. You can see where he's, on the one hand, like inventing a modernist diction that even sort of predicts what Ginsburg's going to do later. And then on the other hand is like just going right up to the edge of fascism and not quite going over the line, but almost. Yeah, some of Pound's famous and most quoted lines are in that section there. But the idea that like, well, you're fighting this war and it's like, for what? Oh, well, you say it's civilization. Well, what is civilization? It's just a bunch of like fucking statues and shit. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but the thing is that it also has like a little bit of that glorification of violence. So you can see like almost a direct line from the beauty of the horrific in Moreau to what somebody like Pound is doing to an explicitly fascist aesthetic even. Let's talk about Cy Twombly. <laughs> at this point, Rachel's going to be describing Cy Twombly's 10 painting installation at the Philadelphia Museum of Art titled 50 Days at Ilium. So we're looking at a room. There's gray tiles. There's a bench in the middle. It looks like a modernist, well, contemporary art museum. But in reality, in, on the far wall at the end of the room are these three shamrock looking things that are supposed to represent some. One's red, 
One's gray slash blue and one is white slash gray. On the left, it looks like a child scribbled on the wall and it, there's one very phallic looking thing that sort of guides your eye to the right. The left side of it is more scribbles with like black and blue. And then on the right, there's some red. And now we're looking at the right wall. The one closest to us can't really see it that well, but it's got more scribbles on it. All of these look like scribbles because I think that's kind of the point because it's childlike and we can get more into that. And yeah, it's kind of hard to describe. Anna? <laughs> All of these almost kind of like make me mad, you know? Why do they make you mad? Because they don't make sense and they're just scribbles. Yep. That's the point. Yep. I know it's the point, but it makes me mad that that's the point. What do you see here if we're looking at the Achaeans, Anna? Well, a couple of things stick out to me. Do they stick out? Like, look at that. That's an obvious dick right there. No, that's what I was going to say. They stick out. Yeah, it sticks out. Like a tent. (laughs) But that's the point, also. Why else would he draw it so large? This just sticks out to me. But also, which one is that? Like a fire that consumes all before it? I love that one. Just the different shades of red. How Mm -hmm. dramatic it is. And what about this set, the Ilians? Well, you can see how he's picking his colors purposely because the contrast from the Achaeans to the Ilians is a much more warm color palette versus I see in this a much cooler color palette. And actually, the end, I forget the name of it, reminds me almost like a cloud shape, but I know it's not supposed to be a cloud. It's supposed to be the dream of the end of this conflict, I think. If I'm remembering right, that's the last one, right? Shades of Eternal Night. Shades of Eternal Night, yes. Or maybe it's a nightmare. Sure. Eternal Night, I would think that would mean death. But yeah, maybe maybe it is a nightmare. I mean, in a certain sense, this is the last panel, but I guess that narratively this feels like the last panel that shades of eternal night because these the Ilians and the Achaeans these panels seem to just like sort of announce the sides of the room in case you're confused and so yeah I, I agree with you this is kind of the last one narratively speaking the shades of eternal night especially with a title like that right And the way that it shifts from shades of eternal night then you go immediately back into well, where you would have started? I mean, kind of, or maybe it's just a numbering convention. I mean, you have to think of the thing spatially more than of it, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, you know? I think what's more important is that, like, spatially, these two of the Ilians and the Achaeans are at the entrance, and then you go around the, the gallery in a clockwise direction. So I, it's really probably just a stupid distinction to say, well, it's number nine. I mean, say in this essay by Richard DeVia is man by nature a violent being. He tracks through and as he discusses it, Shades of Eternal Night is the last thing that he talks about, even though it's panel nine. So that's just a numbering convention, I think. No, but yeah, even in the room as you're walking by it, I'm just wondering if you were there, you'd go past that one and then go back to the more red tone one. 
not even the numbers. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, this, it's also interesting that you're like, if you think about it as a room, you're kind of inevitably stuck in that room, right? So, yeah, yeah sure, you come out, you look at the two, you go around the way, but it's not like you move to the next room of an installation. It's just, that's the whole room. You've dead-ended. And then you have to come back out. So as you come back out, yeah, you're right. You're kind of stuck there looking back at, okay, we have two sides of this battle. And then over here we have vengeance, right? You're, you're stuck in a recursive structure. It's a cul-de-sac. Okay, let's talk about 50 Days at Ilium. What did you get out of this, Rachel? So here's my thought process. I hate them. And I hate them because they don't fit my little box of what I think art should be. But it is art because other people are interpreting it a different way. But I don't like it because it just looks like scribbles. But that's what it's supposed to be. It fills me with rage and I don't know why. Do your feelings go further than that? Or is it just that you can see that he's pushing the boundaries? He's pushing the boundaries and I think it's stupid that people are paying to see it. Because like I could literally, do you want me to draw something right now? He's really pissed off. There you go. Yeah. That's cool. I like it. Ooh, interesting. I'm just Rachel? shitting on it. I know you are. Are you? Are you? Yeah, because it, it makes me angry. Show it again. I'm doing what he did. There's like red and blue clouds and then there's scribbles and then there's a dick and it's raining and then there's Cassandra. Yeah, but I think his is better. Well, <laughs> I'm just shitting on it, okay? It's not supposed to be good. That's the point. Uh, I mean, I think his is better. <laughs> well, yeah. But I also do, like, put my children's art, like, on the walls of my house. Well, that's because and even frame it's it. something created by somebody you love. Maybe, yeah, but, also, yeah. but also I pick and choose the ones that are better, and I can know which ones are better, even when they're all scribbles. I still don't I, like it. I He's an adult. Which, He's I an know adult. which ones are better. How do you judge? Uh, you just kind of feel it. Well, I kind of feel like this is stupid. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to take that away from you. <laughs> Did you get something out of then Kevin Mercer's? Is that the one that you were showing post? us earlier? It's the one that starts, I hated those fucking paintings. <laughs> it's the one that starts, I hated those fucking paintings. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, he talks about how he, yeah. you know, over a series of years of going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art sort of came to an understanding of them that was a little bit different and learned to appreciate them. I mean, the title's called The Most Important Paintings I've Ever Seen, and the first sentence is, I hated those fucking paintings. It was funny. I mean, I think that it's a really good read of them. And the last sentence of it is, I love those fucking paintings. (laughs) So it's great. And it's a really, really short I don't even know if I want to call it an essay. It's basically just a blog post, you know? I think that it's a really good read. And Rachel, your objection and a lot of people's objection to experimental art is really interesting to me because so much of that objection is wrapped up in an almost unwitting critique of capitalist culture. And I'll say, for your sake, almost unwitting, because obviously you know what you're saying. But for most people, for like your average bloke, it is fully unwitting, right? The idea that somebody could be paid to do something like this, right? I mean, 
for someone like you who thinks a little bit harder about things, of course, you are well aware that plenty of people within capitalism are paid to do utter bullshit that's way less difficult than people who are paid far less, you know? Certainly, you are well aware that the reason people get paid to do such things are that everything is ruthlessly commodified, right? I feel less torn up about something like 50 Days at Ilium being in the Philadelphia Museum of Art where anyone can see it. And as I said, the Philadelphia Museum would, and probably still does, though they change these things depending on how much money they have at any particular time, have days when anybody can come whether or not you have money to buy a ticket or not. So these things are on public exhibitions. One nice thing about it is that sort of format allows anybody to have access to this art. It's not just for rich people. Though, of course, they did pay for it in the first place. And so that's sort of this, one of these weird charity-style workarounds that we have in capitalism because we've refused to set up a system where it's like, you know, ideally the state would just be like, ah, oh, yes, this is good. And then everybody can have access to it. But of course, that is, you know, then subject to all forms of corruption and orthodoxy, which we won't need to get into until we talk about Soviet art. And I also have behind me two canvases that were done by my sister back when she did do a few paintings from time to time before she got into more conceptual stuff. And neither of them is objective. They're both very, very abstract. I mean, to me, they look like landscapes or seascapes. I can right. say that those like look better than other ones. Those look like something. And you're going to say, yeah, they're more figurative or more landscapative than something like what Cy Twombly is doing. And they are. But, you know, still, like, out of a bajillion of studies and scribble scrawls and whatnot that my sister had that she couldn't sell, like, those were the two that I grabbed and that I saved and that I've continued to put up because I can recognize that they're better than the others. Even if it's all, like, splishy splash and scribble scrawl, I can still say, no, no, those are better. And I couldn't necessarily explain to you why. But I also feel like a lot of people would agree that they're better than other things you could do, splishy splash and scribble scrawl. Now, that's not me claiming that there's like a universal aesthetics. It's just to say that like when we can judge that things are good or things are bad, then something's going on that is artistic. It's also comparing... Twombly to the other pieces in the museum, which people are more used to. People like me will look at this pointillism that I just saw. These are just literally scribbles compared to that. So that is better and this is worse. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Anna? I see both sides in this. I'm tempted to say, well, it's childish, but you can see the thought that he put into it. Yeah, and I don't want to agree with you because I'm too proud, but I am agreeing with you on that side. I still like hating it. Like, yes a, yes, a child can do it, but when you think about his whole concept, then I'm tempted to say that, no, these are not scribbles at all. They're really just representations of his larger vision. And definitely there's some range in there to me to pick out ones that I think, like you said, are better than the others. If I had to prefer any of them, I would prefer the ones that 
were less scribbly, but I do think it's important to understand why he was doing what he was doing. But then again, I totally see Rachel's point too. I talked about this a little bit when we were talking about proof rock. I almost wanted to compare it to like listening to one of those turn of the century Radiohead albums, or maybe to like, like an early Sonic Youth record or something like that, where you just don't get it the first time around and you just need to go back to it a few times. And then eventually when you do start to get it, that's part of how it is as deep as it is that it took that time to work it through your brain. I think that in a certain sense, that's what all modernism and postmodernism, all of like high art from that symbolist phase forward is really emphasizing as the marker of great art. And it's something that we see in visual art. It's something that we see in literary art. And it's something that eventually we see in experimental music as well. Anna, you seem to have a pretty in-depth music taste. So I don't know if you have had a similar experience to what I'm talking about. I'm sure at some point I couldn't pinpoint it for you. (laughs) In my experience, the more obscure you go and the less people know about it, the more experiences like that you tend to have. Exactly. Like I said, that's definitely happened to me. Do tell. I'd say my music taste generally is pretty broad. I like to pick a little bit of everything except country. But just in general, when you pick a band or a genre or even a subgenre, and then you get past the tracks that everyone knows, you get past the ones that are way overplayed on the radio, and you go to the bottom, that's where all the hidden gems are. And then you press play, and you're like, wait, how have people never heard this before? And then then you start thinking like, oh, some of those tracks that I've listened to have been more or less defined in a way. So then it gets you thinking, oh, what were they doing here? What was their intent? Also, why don't more people like this, you know? I was like that with this one band, Moonbow, and one song in your lifetime. I just, I, I didn't like it, but the more I listened to it, I was like, oh, I understand why this is going with this beat and this melody now. And because I understand that, now I like it. I mean, I think that music, especially in the American experience, is a good comparison because American popular music and also American underground music tends to all flow out of the blues. And the blues is all about figuring out how to do more with less. And so this sort of idea of minimalist art and also the idea of an art that's full of accidents, an art that's full of happenstance and randomness and even sloppiness actually is kind of core to the American experience of music in the late 20th century and even to today. That, for me, is a good parallel to something like what Cy Twombly or a lot of other non-figurative modern and postmodern visual artists are doing, which is to say all the mistakes are there, they're all there on purpose, there's not too much there, and what's there looks like it could be meaningless, 
but it is still nevertheless the stuff of life. And if we know how to listen to it, it can make sense to us. And I was, as I said, thinking of, for instance, a lot of Sonic Youth songs where like on the micro level, the sounds which the guitars produce could more or less just be said to be noise. But then when you draw back and you hear the whole song, it does sound like a song in a certain way. It has the structure of a song, but what's going on at the very tight level is like a sort of noise production, right? So in the same way at the very sort of, I'm looking at a canvas tight level, this is just a lot of scribbles and a lot of letters and a lot of very abstract, frenetic noise. But then back out on the broadest possible level, we have a sort of overarching schema of history, of civilization, of the concept and problem of warfare. And we sort of even get that down to, as I said, that fundamental blues structure that is like the anchor of everything that ends up being rock and pop and even experimental music in the United States. The 12-bar blues is anchored by saying the same thing twice and then saying something different. That means that there's like an aspect of the mundane. There's an aspect of, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next to it, right? There's an aspect of, well, anybody could do this. And that's what makes blues blues. And that's what makes punk punk. And that's what makes modern art modern art in a certain way, right? I mean, I think that like if we're going to get into something like what what like Jasper Johns is doing or whatnot, that's actually quite a bit different because some of what Jasper Johns, for instance, is doing is showing off like you could never do this. Like you might want to try. You might think you could, but you wouldn't have the patience or in other cases, you wouldn't have the skill or in other cases, you wouldn't have the cleverness. Once you get into the more minimalist and sloppier postmodern stuff that that folks like Cy Twombly and his contemporaries are doing, it does get more into that realm of, well, I could do that too. Okay, go ahead, do it. Why aren't you out there being a badass artist? You know, (laughs) I like the idea that people get pushed to a place where they say, well, I could do that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's like punk rock too, right? Like you see people who could like only barely play their instruments. Well, okay. So go ahead and go. No one's stopping you. It's, I, I get that feeling about poetry too sometimes. Like, you know, if I read something in a magazine where I'm like, ah, oh, that's not so good, that makes me like pumped to like, no, I could do it. I could do better than that. I could. Like, it doesn't like beat me down and make me feel like poetry is meaningless and bullshit. It makes me feel like, oh yeah, I'm in it. I can play, you know? It's a good feeling. It should sure. be inspiring. I guess the yeah. question is like, what do we want out of our art museums? Do we want something that's like untouchable and perfect? Or do we want something that's like an expression of all of our human souls? Both. I mean, I get both when I hear like, like a, yeah, a good blues or like a Sonic Youth song or a Refuse song, right? That has like two chords. And it's like, man, you just fucking beat the shit out of those two chords and like no one can beat the shit out of those two chords like you could like like you did stupid better than anyone else could you know with those types of songs it still sounds great though well that's but that's i think the point that i'm trying to make here 
which yeah. is that like as stupid as this seems like i don't think that i could actually even write these names and make them look as vicious as this is it's just a bunch of names written but i don't think that i could make them look that nasty i don't think that i could make that scribble look quite as fierce like, I don't know if he practiced it a few times. I mean, I guess he did. It looks like he drew it a few times and erased it and just kept working on it and working on it. And sometimes it's not even a matter of skill. It's a matter of patience, right? Not even actually doing the scribbles or practicing the scribbles, but having the mind think of such a thing, that's part of it too. You're like, I'm just going to do that. Like the dicks charging into battle. It seems like just like a joke right off the bat, right? And it is like... There are a few spots where you're like, is that a dick or is that a knife? Is that a... And then there's a few moments like this where it's like, oh, no, it's it's most definitely a dick. Like, it's most definitely an army of dicks charging into battle. It's a big dick. It's a series of dicks, right? They also kind of look like finger guns a little bit. Like if a kid tried to draw a finger gun. And this is, again, from that Richard DeVia piece he says yeah the whole point is that this looks like a kid could draw it it's showing the viciousness and the childishness of warfare but just because it is showing a viciousness and childishness doesn't mean that there's not also a certain amount of art and skill behind it that it was done in this particular way i think it comes off i don't know quite well especially when you when you see the whole scope of the thing It is quite impressive to see, you know, it in space. You see how it moves across the wall. You see how it all sort of fits together. And he does this often by having these elements that are only half on the canvas. So they lead your eye across that gap of the wall to the next canvas. It's quite clever and quite intentional. There's a definite flow to the room. There's a charge in on the one side. After the shades, we have the charge out on the other side. You might hate how he puts it together or how he does it, but you have to respect how the final product, like you said, looks from afar. And it also reminds me of the other piece that I liked by him was the Nine Discourses on Commodus. It's kind of the same thing where there's however many canvases and they're all painted in gray. And then on every one, there's a splash of color, either white or red or orange and then it just builds and builds in kind of the same way as this one and this was read as a reaction to john f kennedy's assassination and was taken to be kind of controversial when it was first exhibited because it didn't seem like a proper work of mourning and because the historical comparison to commodus seemed to suggest a kind of ambivalence over whether kennedy was a great ruler or some sort of tyrant or whatnot. I think that this is one of, I suppose, many situations in which history is kind of vindicated Twombly in a certain sense. I mean, whatever you think of Kennedy, I just to say that historically speaking, Kennedy's assassination has, at least in a mythological sense, taken on a kind of meaning that is not unlike the kind of demarcation that the assassination of Commodus had, if if you're following me, the sort of transition into uh, an empire into decline. Yeah, I understand that. So my question is then, is he commenting on 
what was going on in the time period, what he foresaw, or things in general. To me, it's things in general. Yeah, to me, I agree with you. By things in general, we mean like a grand trans-historical commentary. Yeah, kind of. And all the, but also all the problems or snags that come with that, you know? Yeah. I think that for an artist like Twombly, we almost can't even call him political because the kinds of political statements he's making are so big picture. They're just sort of in the same way where if you look really, really close in at the art, it's just like, I don't know, it's a bunch of scribbles. And to get like a sense of it, you have to stand back from it and get that kind of epic perspective. Like, well, here are nine huge canvases of scribbles and then you step back and you say oh i get i get a sense of how these all work together that's also his sense of history so he's not like making a political commentary in that tight close-in sense but more in that sense of like we're going to stand back and we're going to think about the history of empire we're going to stand back we're going to think about the history of what it means to fight wars and also in this i see i see it's cyclical kind of in the same sense with 50 days at Ilium, you see the degradation, but then you can go back around and start all over again. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, you're like, oh my God, but here's the thing. It never really ends. At the end, at the supposed end, you get gore, but then again, you can walk back to the other side and it's fine. Do you think that's similar or different to Moreau? Because obviously Moreau is also thinking about how these sort of mythologies, these sort of tendencies toward violence show up again and again. Mm-hmm. Do you think he sees them as cyclical or somehow final or what? I think Moreau does it in a way where he's re-portraying these things, not as to make a statement as to whether or not it will reoccur. I think he's more, okay, well, here's the value in remembering these things and maybe even highlighting some of the ways that things are remembered wrong. That's what I see. Do you think that the specter of nuclear war is as important as Richard DeVia makes it to be? When did he write this? He wrote it in no, I don't, oh, 2019. No, this is posted in 2019, but I think this is from an earlier essay. I think it, I'm sure it was first written elsewhere, and I wouldn't be surprised even then if a lot of the ideas probably had been kicking around for a while. So I wouldn't necessarily credit it to that time. But yeah, at, at the very least, you know. I mean, so now you're talking about 50 Days at Ilium? Go. He identifies these triangles that substitute for A's throughout as nuclear warheads. Sure. And my guess is that people had been talking about that probably all along. My guess is that he's not just, you know, inventing that right now. Sure. Uh, but certainly every time that Cy Twombly writes an A in 50 Days at Ilium, he writes it as a delta. And he even misspells Ilium intentionally with an A so that he can write it with that delta. And so that's read as a reference to nuclear warhead and as a sort of reference to how even if the technology changes, we always have this capacity and this tendency towards destruction on a greater and greater scale. And I'm sure we do. Who knows how far technology will advance even beyond that level? 
I think in this series, yeah, sure, it's more pointed, but it's also a product of its time. That was the thing. Who knows what's going to be the thing. And that's where I think the nine discourses, their ambiguity lends to a little bit more of, well, you could swap this horrible thing for this horrible thing. (laughs) Political context aside, obviously, but... What do you think of the fact that he's sort of blending concepts of writing and representation? Even just saying, oh, well, they're nine discourses, as though they're things he's writing as opposed to paintings, or claiming in a certain sense that these are paintings when they're mainly like lists of names and stuff like that. I think he's challenging us again, challenging our idea of art to get people to think about it and analyze it for the true meaning. But that just ends up being lists of names. So what? Well, it's who's on the list, who's not on the list. Like Helen isn't mentioned once, but Cassandra has basically her own panel canvas. Yeah. What did you think of that? Well, I looked at one of the articles and I think it's cool how Cassandra is mentioned because she was going to do a sexual favor for a god in exchange for being able to see in the future. But when she didn't do the sexual favor, the god was like, um, you can still have that gift, but I'm going to add a little extra onto that. Nobody's ever going to freaking believe you. So she tries to warn everybody, and they ignore it. So, right, Cassandra's name, we know what's coming, then he erases it again because we hear rational advice, but we always ignore it. And ultimately, I, the yeah. house of Priam, which Cassandra is from, is eradicated because nobody fucking listened to her. This is again from Divya's article. He writes and erases her name over and over again. Go ahead, Anna. I think that he's mixing words and other mediums to make commentary on. These can be good things or these can be things that which destroy us. You know, art has contributed to, gosh, countless different movements and enlightenments and things. But it's also been at times problematic or controversial. And it's the same thing with words and literature, too. They both have, to my mind equal power to, I guess, build up or tear down the collective line to which we all belong in one way or another. And that's how he's commenting on that to me in these paintings. For example, in this panel right here, Cassandra is the voice of reason, yet look how messed up that canvas is or that plaque is. Yeah, this is what I was getting at earlier when I was talking about how experimental art an art that blends language and abstraction then leads into performance art because a lot of what the production of this canvas is would be Cy Twombly in the studio writing and erasing and writing and erasing and writing and erasing that name, Cassandra. And you could see in a different era of art that actual action would be the art itself. But instead, as a painting or as a drawing on canvas, what we get as the art is the evidence of that action, right? And it's not entirely unlike something like what we get in the Iliad, where the original art is actually a performance as well. The original art is actually people in a room with the poet who performs or improvises or riffs on the poem as best he can remember it with 
any number of various flourishes and any number of other poets doing that same thing over the hundreds of years with music behind it and whatnot until then somebody somewhere gets a mind to write it down and that ends up being the version that we get that's the evidence of the artwork perhaps not even the artwork itself which is more the performance right and it's also not unlike Cassandra herself trying to say things and trying to be heard but we'll never know what Cassandra herself actually said or actually tried to say because nobody ever even really listened to the things that she said we just have a story about oh this bitch was trying to say some shit to us you know <laughs> we have no idea what she said like if we want to even like play games with the story we can say like well and this is getting very postmodern but that's kind of maybe the fun of it too like maybe she was saying some shit that didn't even matter at all but people remembered like oh wasn't she saying some shit well we couldn't really remember what it was because we weren't listening to her anyway but wouldn't it make a really good story if she was the one who was all along telling us what would have happened <laughs> well we don't know her name is just written and rewritten and erased and rewritten and in those rewritings and in those erasures we get the art we get this sort of shadow imprint of who she was or who she might have been or who she was remembered to have been and then again also isn't cassandra just like a typical experience a of woman a bit Sorry, part, yeah. You, no, you say? said a Sorry. bit part, yeah. A bit part, yeah. And also in that way, a typical experience of being a woman where, no. you know, as central as she obviously would be to her own life, she's a minor character in the Iliad who is now no. elevated to being central to this whole work of art and who, again, characteristically for a woman, isn't listened to after being sexually assaulted or threatened, depending on your interpretation of that. I think there's a lot going on here, and I don't know. listening to the season finale of The Pointless Century. The music in this episode today was Electrica, recorded by the band Refused for their album Freedom, and Shaking Hell, recorded by Sonic Youth for their album Confusion is Sex plus Kill Your Idols. We'll see you soon for the next season of The Pointless Century. The Pointless Century.